it's a gift we have to have this body and to have this incarnation in which we can do this practice and we can do this work. It really is like an incredible gift. So there's absolutely nothing wrong happening. But if we, if um, the senses of too much identification with that body causing suffering, then for me, the practice has always had to be going back to the witness of it, going back to the one who knows it, who doesn't change, who's unchanging, and, and identifying with that unchangingness, that pure consciousness that knows the body, and taking on that, the freedom of that, and the completeness of that, and the, and the wholeness of that. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, and these are my conversations with sadhaks, satsangis, and other spiritual seekers. Join us as we discuss and discover what it means to live a spiritual life and walk the yogi's path. Each week, you'll gain insights into your own practice as we share the stories and wisdom of those that walk the path with us. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. We're back here with another special guest and illuminating conversation. It's so fun to be able to share these treasured chats and nuggets of wisdom with you. This week's guest is someone I've known for quite some time but only recently had the pleasure of truly getting to know. And trust me, you're going to want to stay tuned in till the end of this one because Catherine Pincham is one brilliant teacher in Sadak. Her spiritual path and practice is so unique, inspiring, and one that we can all take note of. Catherine was born in London, UK, and has been steeped in the tradition of Vedic and yogic philosophy her whole life. She had her first Sanskrit lesson on her first day of primary school at the age of four and was introduced to the ancient teachings of the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads not long after. But it wasn't until she met her guru in India in the mid-90s and had a powerful spiritual opening that these teachings really became fully alive for her. Since then, she's spent most of her time living in the Himalayas, attending daily satsang with Swamiji until she moved back to the UK in 2019. She now teaches spiritual philosophy online and loves making the ancient scriptures accessible and relevant to everyone who joins her classes. And I can speak from experience. They are amazing. So now enough of this. Let's hear from Catherine. Mm -hmm. Welcome to A Curious Thank you, Yogi. Bobby. Thanks for inviting me. It's what so, a great project. Yeah, and it's so amazing to have you here. I've always just admired you from afar so it's nice <laughs> to get to hear your story and um just share in your journey so i mean we get, had a pretty full introduction there so i think we can just start by saying you know what is your sadhana and how did you get here to this point in your spiritual path uh yeah that's a that's a big question um <laughs> I think in a way, I would say my sadhana has been a remembering, uh, really a kind of moments of intense remembering and that those moments have really carried me through. Um, if I think back to my childhood, I think I had a very, very strong sense of, of being, even when I was really little. I remember this, I remember... Um, going for a walk with my grandpa. I was probably like seven or eight or something like that. And we went to the park together and I was running along and I fell over and scraped my knee. Like my knees always had plasters on because <laughs> I was always like had big scabs on my knees from running <laughs> too fast. But um, so he said to me, oh, are you hurt? And I said, no, no, I'm not hurt. Um, my knee is hurt. And he just thought it was the funniest thing. And I was really quite perplexed as kind of why it was so funny. And we got back and he told my grandma and she thought it was hilarious. And, <laughs> and everybody thought it was so funny. And But luckily, uh, when my dad came in and he was told the funniest thing I'd said, he said, no, no, she's right. You know, she she isn't just her body. And then it was like, oh, yeah, I did know that. I knew that. <laughs> like... 
and it feel, felt like um, also I remember this really strong feeling as if nobody ever could see me like that I could that nobody was really seeing me and I remember saying it to a friend once and saying do you ever have the sense that nobody is really seeing you and like they obviously didn't they were completely <laughs> kind of blank face <laughs> um, but anyway then eventually when um, so yes I, I better explain because you, you you mentioned that the school I was sent to my parents had met in a in an evening group in London, which where they learnt um, philosophy, and they were inspired by a teacher in India called the Shankaracharya, who'd introduced meditation to them and and kind of philosophy of yoga and of oneness and um, and it was an amazing school, very sincere people, but there wasn't really anyone in that school directly who knew what they were talking about. And as a result, it became quite stifling for me. It, they were very into the kind of the whole discipline, discipline side of yoga, and also had picked up quite a lot of the kind of Indian subculture of women should be present to serve their men type of attitude as well. Which, oh, even as a little girl, <laughs> I remember sitting there thinking, "Now that doesn't sound right at all." <laughs> and uh, so I. Because of the, my experience with that, I felt that that part wasn't me. Even though I had this strong sense of being, I didn't really connect that with what they were talking about properly. And then, um, like I said, well, you said <laughs> in the introduction, when I was in my early 20s and I visited my sister who um, had met our teacher in India, who was then her teacher, not my teacher, um, it was suddenly that everything I'd been told in those early years at school just came to life. Like it was, it was like watching a film and suddenly everything in the film comes to life. <laughs> it was a very, very intense experience. And I remember meditating just a few days after I'd arrived in Kulu. And you know what it's like. I mean, the valley's so beautiful there. I was blown away just by the mountains and by the place and everything. I was quite intimidated because in satsang, which is the daily meeting of, uh, you know, the discussion every day, which Swamiji would lead, at any time you can be called to speak. And I was very shy, like really shy. I was terrified of getting called to speak. So that was quite a lot to have to handle. And, but I remember um, sitting to meditate just probably three or four days after I'd arrived and having this very, very intense experience of remembering myself and at the exact same moment recollecting what guru is who guru was like what who swamiji was it was like oh that's who it is <laughs> and and it it was just such it was very powerful strong experience i i realized in that moment of complete oneness i, I understood that that was the being of him of me and of everything and that it was like he was that being who spoke and who had a human form rather than somebody with a form who was occasionally accessing the being. <laughs> so it was like he was um, almost a catalyst, I suppose, and, and is a catalyst still. Um, and so from then onwards, I realized that this is what my life is going to be about. And it was funny because it was such a powerful experience for me. I kind of really thought, oh, this is it, you know, just everything is one, it's so easy, it's that, that's not very difficult to know. <laughs> and of course, within a week or so of my having gone back to England, it didn't seem so easy to know it anymore. And that experience appeared to get covered over. And even though I remembered what I'd learnt from it, and I knew that this was the most important thing for me, it was as if my sadhana really started at that moment because then I had to actually go back to what I was conditioned to believe I was, a little, 
a little girl. I wasn't that little by then. I was in my 20s. But a young woman, kind of quite shy. I'd had, like, various difficulties in my childhood. My mother had died when I was three. I don't think those at all necessarily helped me become, you know, just an easy, uh, kind of relaxed, unfearful person. I think I, I had quite a lot of fear. And... Um, so I think my sadhana from then on became taking this knowledge that I knew to be true and applying it to myself. And if the myself I believed myself to be was the, my, my mind and my body and my form, I had to apply it to that and just see, <laughs> and just see what happened. And I suppose um, that... There's, there's a nice analogy actually in the scriptures that um, th that yoga sadhana can be like dipping a cloth in dye that when they uh, created saffron robes then they would um, dip the cloth in the saffron again and again and again they would dip it, they would take it out, they would dry it and then they would dip it again and the colour would get more and more each time a little bit more colour would get in and I guess that's the kind of process of sadhana that being in satsang with Swamiji day in, day out uh, for long periods of time, it can seem as if nothing very remarkable is happening, but something is, is you're, you're getting um, steeped mm -hmm. in, in the knowledge of oneness, and, and, it, and it starts to really inform everything you think, everything you do the choices that you make. Um, so that's how I came. Was that the question? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was no, the question? that was perfect. I can't remember. <laughs> that was perfect. And I just want to go back and touch a little bit. Like, w obviously, your sister is spiritual, and I've heard that you're, I've heard about your father as well. And it sounds like he's also spiritual. He's putting his young girls in a Chunkakaria school. So, like, growing up, did you? You know, you had that sense when you were younger, and then were you becoming more disillusioned as you were getting older? And then, you know, like, what was that like growing up? Where did you have the sense of being a spiritual person or having I think, a I, I think, in, yeah, I think internally I had a strong sense of being a spiritual person, but I, but because I, I didn't like my school, I didn't like the way it made me feel. I, I, they, it was. I felt. I felt kind of suppressed by the, by the teachers and by the way that they taught, and and because of that, I rebelled against it. And I remember when everyone in our class. I think when we were eleven or something, the teacher came and said, "Now it's time. It's your choice, but we highly recommend that you all get initiated into meditation, and you'll wear a long skirt and you'll bring some flowers and this and that." And I only really, not, it wasn't really to do with the meditation, it was just because I didn't want to do what I was told. I was like, nope, I'm not meditating. <laughs> the whole of the rest of my class meditated, well, got initiated. And I, I had to sit outside every day while they meditated together, <laughs> which is so funny when I think about it now. Um, so I really rejected it at that age, and I think... To be honest, they just didn't present it in a way that children could understand. We were literally given a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, translated by the Shankasharya, and it was a really, really hard. Like, even when I look at that particular translation, now it's not easy. Uh, so they weren't, they hadn't learnt. I think that the organisation now has, has, has grown and learnt a lot, but at that stage they really hadn't learnt how to communicate with children at all. Mm -hmm. So... I, I kind of deeply inside did feel spiritual, but I felt that I had to kind of discover my own way. And I ended up, so I went to boarding school from the age of 13. And then it wasn't in, in a way until I left my earlier school that I, I started appreciating some things about it. I remember going to boarding school and even though I'd refused this initiation into meditation, um, Every class at my primary school, it was called St. James, every class at the beginning and end of every lesson we would have a pause where we closed our eyes for one minute or two minutes. And I remember arriving at my boarding school and the end of the lesson would go, the bell would ring, everyone was like clambering up out of their desks. 
And I suddenly realized that I was missing the pause. Oh, <laughs> and wow. I kind of, you know, I suddenly kind of started appreciating, okay, yeah, some things they did were quite helpful. <laughs> and so I did actually, in truth, have a sense that deep down there was something important about it. But, but I just couldn't, I couldn't think that that was, I could go back to anything that was like that again. And so I ended up becoming quite interested in different cultures and I studied, I went to Cambridge and studied social anthropology there. And particularly I think as I as worked like kind of an older teenager, I was drawn to stories of, uh, you know, Native Americans and of uh, Kalahari, the uh, Kung Bushmen. And I, I love the stories of those people because they had this sense in them of, understanding that all of nature is one being that um, I remember reading some of the stories of the Bushman it would be like the moon knowing itself to be full shone on the on the rocks that knew the moon you know that mm. there was this underlying sense of every the consciousness of everything which is something that I really that I loved and I kind of knew was true and and it's interesting because actually during those times I would when I was reading a book I would I had a little book of quotations that um, of things I would really like I also had and that. <laughs> yeah and then later you know after I'd been to India and met Swamiji and I look back at those quotations they were all pointing in the direction of <laughs> yeah. this knowledge, right? <laughs> but I was just not really recognizing that. Mm -hmm. um, and so when, yeah, so then when I finally um, made it to India, thanks to my sister, um, it became apparent that it was my path. Mm -hmm. But Swamiji made it a path of such kind of delight and freedom and yeah of of openness and freedom and relaxation um that that's why i i realized oh this is my path because in my first school as lovely as they were they never mentioned the word freedom <laughs> they never said they never said you're free uh and it's such a simple thing and it's it's the deep truth of all of us that we're that we're free Mm -hmm. And Swamiji, when he would talk, he would often say, you know, freedom works on all levels. You have to be free on all levels. And it's such an important point. And it's one, when I'm teaching now, I, I always want to bring that out and remember that, that any practices we're doing, we're doing from a place of freedom. And we're, look, we're doing it to become more free. Never, never from a place of you have to do that and I must do this and it's, you know, all, that right and wrong sense, all of that isn't aligned with the teachings of oneness actually mm -hmm. at all. Yeah, and then going back to when you came to India the first time and then you had to go back to the UK, I know then you and your partner, John T, you lived and ended up eventually living in India for a long time, but when you gave that beautiful analogy of the saffron robes and like that seeping, like you got that first hit in India, a hit if you want to mm. call it, but that first recognition mm. that, mm. that, you know, the shower of knowledge being put on you, then going back into the world, becoming identified again, feeling like a girl, mm. a woman with these responsibilities. What mm. was it inside of you or what was it that called you to, okay, I'm actually going to just drop all of my conditions well work too and mm. responsibilities and actually move to India that's pretty mm. dramatic you know, you know it took me time to get to that point even though I it, the, the truth of what I'd uh, seen was very real but it took me basically 10 years nearly from that first meeting of Swamiji to actually making that decision this is it we're moving to Kulu and I was afraid that the, the, my very first trip, it was before I'd met Jonti actually. And, and Jonti was one of the only people after I came back from India to London who I met and talked to about what I'd experienced and who said, wow, like that's amazing. And we just immediately kind of bonded about, about this knowledge. And so we've been together for, you know, ever since then. So I've been really lucky having him as a 
kind of partner on this path. What was it that like finally had you say, okay, we're just yeah. Go so and... so actually, you know, you know what it was. Um, so for the first few years after I first went to India, I I would go back, earn money, and then come to India and see how long my money could last. So I would come for long periods of time, sometimes like nine months, I think one time like 18 months. So I had these long stints in India during that time, but I'd always find myself back in the UK and having to kind of start again. And at some point, I just got really sick. I got chronic fatigue and it didn't, it took me, you know, a while to get over that. And it really made me review the choices I'd been making and and prioritize what I should have prioritized much earlier in my life. And of course, there were all sorts of difficulties earlier, you know, to do with money and so on. But really, I think if I really look back, it was a lack of courage that that stopped me from from somehow just making it work earlier. And that I thank God that I did make it work eventually. <laughs> so then when I when I uh, had some money and got well and finally made it back to Kulu to live full time, that was 2007, I think, 2007. Um, and then all those times, every time I came to India, I would get filled up. And then every time I would go back to the UK, it was as if I was spending what I'd got filled up with. And which, which isn't, which was fine. It was the best that I could do at that time, given all the circumstances. But it's not, it's not, um, I was misunderstanding things, actually, is the truth of it. I was, I was misunderstanding and thinking that a particular feeling because being around Swamiji and being in the ashram was very blissful and I'm sure is still blissful I'm not there at the moment but there's a strong energy to the place and I think I was mistaking a kind of blissed out energy for being connected with myself and and identifying with that energy and thinking I have to keep this feeling going as long as I possibly can or I won't be okay. <laughs> and and looking back now I see I see that as a mistake. But I couldn't really recognize it as a mistake until I'd gone past that in my sadhana in a way. So when I came back to India, 2007, Jonti and I came back and we, we lived there um, for another, we lived there for how long? Um, 12 years, till 2019. And during that time, I would say there were periods of going to satsang every day, doing that dipping of the cloth again and again, which is powerful. And actually that daily practice for anybody, even just at home, your daily meditation is far more effective and powerful than going on a retreat like one weekend and then not doing it for two months. So really that daily practice was incredibly helpful and really stands you in good stead in the long term. But sometimes you'd have periods, I'd have periods of feeling as if you're on a plateau, as if nothing much is changing in your sadhana. And then sometimes you'd suddenly have a breakthrough. Like I remember, I, I told you about this actually the other day when we were talking about the gunas. So in 2011, I think it was, I had a bit of a rough time in terms of my health again. My energy had been going a bit down. And I'd written to Swamiji and asked him a letter about it and written him a letter, asked him a question about it. And... Um, he wrote me back and he said um, that I should read the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, out loud every day. And then he said, and I would tell you to do it a hundred times, but you wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> so <laughs> he, 
he caught me, he caught my ego, and it's like, yes, I can. Yeah, here comes so, the sixth grade student that's getting told to meditate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that practice was really started, was very powerful for me. And he had said to me, when, he'd, when he had uh, written to me, he had said, then if you speak it out loud, it's really important to read this out loud. He said, then the knowledge of your mind and the knowledge of your body and the knowledge of the self will all be in harmony with one another. And it's such an interesting point because I think what, what could happen and can happen with people is that somewhere they know the nature of the self, they know this pure being, but the knowledge of their mind isn't in harmony with with that deeper knowledge and the, and their body is also holding fear or holding different things that also isn't in harmony with that knowledge which is of course why we have all the practices of of mantra and hatha yoga and everything but um i started this daily gita reading and it's it just really started changing something for a start I, I told you before that I was really shy, that I found it really intimidating having to be called to speak in satsang. And when I did go up at the beginning, particularly, my voice would be like my throat would kind of like close off. <laughs> I couldn't say anything. I would be practically whispering. And, you know, it was just nerve wracking. And something happened to me during that that. And, and which I still do every day. I still read the Gita out loud, but something is kind of transformed in my speaking, I think. And it just brought out my my ability to speak and my voice. And um, so having done that for a few, been doing that for a few weeks, my meditations as well really started um, changing in a certain way. They started kind of I was starting to have a lot of energy in my meditation. And sometimes it would almost seem like too much energy or it would go stuck in a funny place. And I would, when I would come out of meditation, I, once or twice I couldn't move my body for 10 minutes or something. And, and so I asked Swamiji about that, which um, was really very interesting what he said to me and very powerful and a real kind of turning point that day, I remember, because he said to me, um, Maybe you aren't meditating quite correctly. He said, when you meditate, you have not to do anything. Mm -hmm. And of course, words might not fully convey <laughs> what that conveyed to me. But in that moment, it was very powerful. It really freed me. It really freed me from any sense of there being anything to achieve in meditation, not just to do, but to achieve. And I think, again, a lot of these things you only see in retrospect, but in retrospect, I think that when I'd been meditating previously to that, I had been holding on to a concept that when you meditate, the ideal state is to be blank. That the ideal state is not to have any thoughts and to be completely blank without a sense of I in it either. And when he, after I'd had this interaction with him in satsang, this conversation with him, um, I, I went home and I meditated. And I realized my thoughts came, as they often do, but I could see really, really clearly that my thoughts were just waves of consciousness of me. And I realized I could think, I know this, or I could think, I don't know this. And that they it didn't matter, <laughs> that they were, just, they were just a wave of consciousness. They had no actual meaning in and of themselves. And then after I opened my eyes again and I looked out uh, of the window of where I, uh, the meditation room in my little unit there, I could see some clothes kind of blowing on the line of my neighbor's or my neighbor's roof. And, I, and it was just really, really clear to me that those clothes were also just waves of consciousness in, my, in the same field of vision. The field of vision is the field of consciousness. And that it was all in me. And so therefore, I, and from that 
moment on, I think, I never again had the sense of losing my connection with the self or of gaining it either. I never had the sense of being of that, you know, previously, like you're, if you go away from satsang as if something fades. I've never had that since then because it's just really, really something became very clear that there's nothing to cover. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no, nothing is separate than that. What, what would be covering that? Mm -hmm. That is all that there is. But the thing is with sadhana is that you can say the words, but what actually happens through the process of practice is that the words become more and more and more true for you. Um, and so I think that that's kind of what happened to me then. And even though these experiences um, are very intense in the moment, and that experience, the state I was in that day, didn't last, as states don't last, I became much more... Um, I understood really truly from then on that what I was didn't change. The self doesn't change, which is why I guess I've also called my uh, teaching kind of my teaching name is, you know, un my website is Unchanging Being. It's kind of inspired from that because it's not something that is remembered or forgotten in a, in a normal kind of way. It's actually something that we always are. It's, it's, it's the ground of our being always. And thinking that you've forgotten it is nothing. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not true. You know, it's not true. But I do recognize that until you can say, I know that, you can't say, I know that. Mm -hmm. And it's really inspiring to hear you say that because I, I think maybe it would be nice for you to speak to the f challenges which I know myself and a lot of people get stuck on as you're starting to go down a spiritual path is this identification or the sense of struggle with the body and you're someone who has faced mm -hmm. a lot of health issues one thing or another mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and to uh, how to get to that place you know when you have to face the body and when the body does feel mm -hmm. real to get to that space can feel, I know for myself and I'm sure for others, feel like a big leap and I probably did for yeah. you at some point as well, like to feel struggle in your body and how to say like, I am not mm -hmm. this body, like mm -hmm. to, how to get to that point. I mean, I, I think for a start when you say the body does feel real, yes it does because you are real. Um, so to, to, to have an idea that the body shouldn't feel real is is um, not necessarily helpful mm -hmm. um, but always when we're experiencing the body in that way and there's nothing wrong with experiencing the body it's a it's a gift we have to have this body and to have this incarnation in which we can do this practice and we can do this work it really is like an incredible gift so um, there's absolutely nothing wrong happening but if we, if um, the senses of too much identification with that body causing suffering, then for me the practice has always had to be going back to the witness of it, going back to the one who knows it, who doesn't change, who's unchanging, and and identifying with that unchangingness, that pure consciousness that knows the body. Um, and taking on that, the freedom of that, and the completeness of that, and the and the wholeness of that, as opposed to the to the the fear that's carried in the body, because the body ends. That's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing about the body. It doesn't last. It has ups and downs. It can be healthy or unhealthy, and in the end, it will go back. It will be recycled back into the elemental components that it's made of um, but you the being the consciousness of it you don't go anywhere you stay 
Yeah, that's so beautiful. But it, it's, you know, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here because oh, I no, obviously, no, like, you know, you're speaking so beautifully, the gyan, the knowledge. But I'm thinking of, okay, so if we can de-identify with the body or have the sense that it is all from mm -hmm. the manifestation mm -hmm. of that one self. But it really has to go against the conditions of the mind, the nature of the mind so wants to be individual and we just see it everywhere. We open our eyes, we go into mm -hmm. the world and we see everybody is me, this is mine, this mm -hmm. is my family, my house. Everything is so mm -hmm. separate. So what for someone that's coming to a spiritual path or just starting mm -hmm. on a spiritual path, it can feel like a far leap to get you know, yeah. That. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I, I agree. It can, and it's not a very kind of sexy answer. But I think, unfortunately, the answer is practice. It is just mm -hmm. to do sadhana every day. And like I say, you can go through periods of time where um, you feel like I'm, I'm not really getting it. But then suddenly, six months later, when you look back at how you feel now compared to then, you realize actually something has definitely shifted. Mm -hmm. um, I feel freer, I feel lighter. And that can just be incremental, incremental. I think some people's path is much more like that. Mine was more like kind of stairs, I guess, of several kind of bigger moments for me that then I would seem to plateau after, and then another thing would kind of take me deeper you can say although fundamentally the knowledge is the same so you can go deeper and yet you haven't gone anywhere you're still with the same being you're still with the same self but you just feel you feel more of it you're freer in it um so i think that and the other beautiful thing is that you know the scriptures provide us with such an amazing way of studying i think self-study is really you know if for people who are into yoga then the swadhyaya of of just studying ourselves is so uh, helpful and so powerful because for that self-study you don't need any uh, like experiences you don't have to have, have kind of met any p person in particular you don't have to have kind of gone into samadhi or any of that it starts with the real basics that everybody has like you have your waking state you have your dream state and you have your deep sleep state. Everyone has those three states. And yet we think, not thinking that you're the body, you think, oh, I wake up in my waking state. This is who I am in my waking state. I position myself in this body, looking out through those eyes. And this is my identity of I. And we completely disregard the fact that in your dream, you also have a dream kind of body sometimes or sometimes no body you also have this dreamed dreamed up sense of I that seems to have a dreamed up location looking out from a certain point within your dream <laughs> it's all manufactured in just the same way and then in deep sleep you you don't have any of it none of that is there there's the absence of experience in deep sleep but when you really look at these again and again and think but what is it that gives continuity to me? Then it isn't this sense of I that comes in the waking state. What gives continuity through all of those states is pure consciousness that underlies all of them, that is the witness of everything that happens in the dream, but actually isn't involved in any of it. And, is, and it's the same in the waking state. So this, these, these, this way of thinking may be unfamiliar to some people, and it may seem kind of quite strange, but it's a way of allowing your mind to kind of lose its grip on this idea that I am just here in this, in this moment, you know, in this body, in this place. All, every human being's mind will think like that, but after a while, you start recognizing, yes, that's the nature of the mind. It will think like that. It's not that that has to stop, but who am I? I'm not that. You know, that mind is just a wave of me. I'm free of that. And you start kind of gaining more of the qualities of that freedom and less of the qualities of the mind that struggles with it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you're really just describing what true yoga is. 
Because when we think in the West, yoga, it can it can become so watered down or so in limited because it doesn't actually reach that point. So I think it's really interesting that you speak to it because, you know, a lot of people that perhaps are listening to this are yoga students or yoga practitioners, but it gets missed quite often. And mm-hmm. when we think of mm-hmm. like, what is yoga? It's, it's that state that you're mm-hmm. speaking of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that um, a lot of people will interpret yoga as being the uh, of unification, let's say, of the the mind body with spirit or conscious or with supreme consciousness, let's say. Uh, so people who've you know maybe read some yoga sutras, you know, studied a bit of that, or or had some introduction to this thinking, might think along that path, and think, I am this individual. And by doing all of these practices, eventually I will unite with this supreme being. So that's one approach, and the practices are very powerful, and they will they will affect a transformation. But you can also combine that with another approach, which is the approach of Advaita Vedanta, which um, with that approach, and which which is where Swamiji really came from. Although he would also use yoga, you know, yogic philosophy, he would also talk about Patanjali. Um, he would use everything, really. There's, no, there's nothing, why not use every tool in the toolbox, you know? But, um, so, in terms of um, that approach, you start with the acknowledgement that you are pure consciousness, and you just have to remove the ignorance of that. So that's the unification straight away. <laughs> you don't wait for the unification. But the process then is removing the forgetfulness of it, removing the, and, and gradually kind of purifying your mind and body in such a way that your habits start becoming more aligned and attuned with that knowledge of oneness rather than the knowledge of, of being a separate identity. So they're similar, they both have the same result. Yoga, as you said, that yoga is the result, that unity, whether you say, it's what you are now, which I think personally is a more powerful way, or whether you say this is something I'm aspiring to work towards. They both, they, they both have the same end result, but when you combine both together, they can be more powerful, I would say. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful to think of, and I love that you know, it's not one way. I remember Swami also saying, like, every path leads to that place. And, you know, sometimes in the yogic traditions, it can be stricter. You know, it has to be this lineage Mm -hmm. and this and that. And it can almost be overwhelming for someone that's coming just like, I want to reach that state. And it's curious, but it can be almost. Mm -hmm. So it's really Mm -hmm. inspiring or motivating to think, okay, actually, I just need to take any step, essentially, as the Mm -hmm. first step. Mm -hmm. And, when and you to were, get some hmm. get some guidance from someone who's at least clearer than you on it is is helpful too. Because otherwise, you're a little bit pick. Your mind is picking and choosing, and your mind can then choose to avoid the things that are more difficult, which are often the things that have to be <laughs> that are most necessary. Mm-hmm. And before, when you were speaking about your experience of misunderstanding. I think that's an interesting point to expand on because a lot of people, and you know, I'm saying a lot of people, but I'm usually just speaking from my own past experience. There is a misunderstanding a lot of times for um, spiritual experiences or experiences that we feel peaceful or happy or whole, but it's still on the level of the mind. So what would you I think yeah. I mean I think that those experiences I don't I think all of everything I experienced kind of on my path was necessary for me to get where I am now so it's not that there's anything wrong about it I think those experiences of peace are, are very important because they they keep us going they keep us working towards it they give us it's like the carrot, you know, that, that, that keeps us motivated. And I think that also they do give you a taste of, of the bliss of the self. So that's, that's important to you start to experience what it is that, 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 that is your actual own nature. So I think it's, it's not to say those experiences aren't important, 
but that if, it, if an experience can change, then its nature is not of the self. And the self is, is really the, it's the substance of all experience, whatever that experience may be. It's the consciousness which allows you to experience something. And so once you really see that and become identified with it, it's much easier to let the experiences come and go and not worry about them too much. Like if you're in a bad mood, so what? <laughs> you're in a bad mood. That will pass. You don't kind of cling to any one particular experience um, and you don't crave for any one particular experience because you know that fundamentally what you are is fine, is good, you're, and you're beyond these changing experiences. And the interesting thing then is that when you get to that place, then a lot of the suffering does disappear just because the suffering is often motivated by the wanting to hold on to something and being afraid to let go of something and the you know that kind of push and pull is a lot of what our, our daily kind of a, a person's daily mental struggle can be about so when that is dropped then then there is a lot more ease that comes but it's not quite the same as always being in a blissed out you know peaceful nothing wrong everything completely shan't kind of space it's not always like that and like you said before about the swadhyaya, the self-study as a practice of refining those experiences and sort of becoming more subtle and building that strength, that conviction that nothing wrong is happening, that it's all me. And to lessen that, it's like you use the analogy of the stairs, like that's a great way to think of it. Like, you know, we, we have to sometimes go over a hurdle or take a big mm. step up and mm. then then there's a calm kind of or a, a settling and then it's like okay here we go again whether it's a, in a day or sometimes those periods of time can last for like months where it feels like is this ever gonna end <laughs> and then suddenly there's like grace at the other side well um i think that this is a great place for us to just have you sum up your you know, what does your sadhana mean to you? And yeah, what does your sadhana mean to you? And any takeaways or any words of wisdom you could leave for someone that's on this path that's looking up to those who, like you said before, that are a little more, it's not linear, I know, but someone that's been on the path a little longer. Keep faith. Keep faith in it. That it, it does work. This is a tried, these, you know, these uh, teachings are tried and tested for millennia, literally. And they're powerful and they work. If you get a good source and you can be guided, so much the better. But even just your own personal practice of, you know, maybe meditating 10 minutes a day, doing a bit of Hatha Yoga every day, doing something that brings your mind a little bit of peace every day. It's a powerful practice, more powerful than you might think after your 10 minutes of meditation and you get up, um, you know, to go to work or whatever. Actually, the cumulative kind of effect of that over years is very powerful. And so it can be easy to give up because you think, oh, that didn't make any difference. I'm not going to do it tomorrow. But actually, in a year's time, if you haven't done it compared to in a year's time, if you've done it every day, it's a big difference. So just keep, keep faith and keep remembering that. Mm -hmm. And that's what you've done, I guess, now for how many years? 20, more than 20 I guess years. It is. I, guess, I guess it is. And, you know, you're talking, and you mentioned my illness and, you know, how to get free of body, body identification. I'm still working on that. Like, it's not as if uh, I feel as if I'm kind of free of any previous identification, but... At the same time, I feel the quality of the word that comes is actually the kind of the vibration that I'm living at is so much more than I ever would have imagined, you know, when I was 20 or something like that. Life is so much richer. The, the quality of it is so much more expanded and free that it's absolutely worth it, totally. Wow, that's a beautiful end point, Catherine. Wow, beautiful. 
So um, is there anything that you want to share that you're working on next? <laughs> well, I believe that you and I have something coming up together, Bobby. <laughs> yes, yes, we have our Gunas workshop coming up in a couple weeks. In June. Yeah. 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 So do you want to just give a little touch point on that and tell the listeners what it is and what to expect? Yeah. So um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, when I started reading the Gita every day, um, I was doing that as a, as a practice um, that I had been instructed to by my teacher. But actually, there were parts of it that I hadn't really been all that familiar with before. And that it took me a while to really understand how important they were. And some of those parts were to do with the three gunas, which have quite, they, they feature quite a lot in the Gita. And they have so much effect on our everyday lives. And I think people don't recognize that enough. And that it's something that when you really start to be attuned with, it becomes, it makes your daily choices of what you eat, where you go, who you talk to, what you do in your evenings, what you do in your weekends. It makes, it makes those choices just much clearer. Um, and also, um, you know, quite a few of my students are often yoga teachers. So for them, it also gives them an extra tool for how they teach their classes. Like, will, maybe a morning class will be quite different, what people want to get out of it, than a, than a class late at night, for example. So these gunas, they, they rise and fall through the day, and they can be influenced, and sattva, of the three of them, there is sattva, rajas, and tamas. Should I should I talk about them now, or should we wait for the, for the workshop? <laughs> well, I think that's a I think it's a good little teaser there for the gunas and okay, and we mm. can you know just tell people what to expect that we'll be doing couple, three weeks two hour workshops. You'll be illuminating us with your mastery of the scriptures and just you're so knowledgeable on them. And I'll be touching on the practical points of pranayam and hatha yoga. So I think it's going to be. A great happening, so all are welcome. I'll definitely put the link to that in the show notes. And if people also just want to connect with you and subscribe to your amazing newsletter, which I might add, I'm on it. It's great. But how? Can oh yeah, I'll send you the you? link for that. You can put it in the show notes. The link for my Perfect. site and the newsletter. And do you want to yeah. just say what it what it's unchangingbeing.com, right? Unchangingbeing.com. Yeah, Perfect. Beautiful. Yeah. And I loved how you explained what how you've chose that name it's a beautiful name for a website and um that's great it's been so amazing to have you here i really just appreciate your wisdom and your vision and it's been a pleasure great it's been a real pleasure lovely talking to you great thanks Catherine. thanks for listening to this episode of a curious yogi podcast if you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes. It really, really helps the show reach more people. Or share on social, and of course, follow on your favorite podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. I appreciate the love, and I appreciate you. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the yogi's path together. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.